Scientists recently launched a satellite into space. The satellite transported a revolutionary infrared camera, which they hoped would photograph our universe with a precision previously unknown to mankind. The evolutionists were licking their chops for a long time. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, they've been pointing to the stars of distant galaxies, which appear to be less tightly spun together. They don't believe, of course, that God created the universe, so they don't believe that he could have created light touching the earth from these stars. They don't believe that light might have slowed down considerably since the beginning of time. And of course, they believe that the world evolved into being. So they find in the light of these distant stars proof of their theory of evolution. They conclude that the light coming from the more distant galaxies has taken longer to reach us. And it certainly it has, if you assume their perspective. And since it's taken longer to reach us, and since they're less tightly spun together, this reveals to us that in the, the origin of our universe, there was a great explosion. How many ever years ago you want to, how many zeros you want to put at the end of it? Billions of years ago. But armed with this new infrared camera, evolutionists could hardly wait to see even further into space. And what they anticipated was even less tightly spun galaxies showing some type of result from an explosive chaotic event. Well, the first pictures were transmitted back to Earth. From the evolutionist establishment, there came a collective gasp, followed by a collective uh-oh. Before their very eyes was unimpeachable evidence of brilliant artistry. They didn't expect that. The inferiority of space photography of the past allowed scientists to maintain their belief that the universe originated with some type of random explosion. If I could illustrate it, it would be like going to McDonald's and going to the play area, you know where I've been recently, and uh, going into that little ballroom and taking a camera into that, you know, there's, if you don't know what I'm talking about, they have this little fenced-in area, and they have all these little balls, a whole bin of balls, and the kids can jump in it and play in it. Well, consider going into that play area of all these little round plastic balls, and you take your camera in there, and you jump into the balls, and you wiggle your way down to the bottom, and you hold up your camera, and you take pictures. Well, all you see is balls all over. It's just kind of this blurry balls. And you, and you start to make conclusions about your world. Well, that's kind of like the old cameras that pictured space. We just didn't really, couldn't really see what was going on there. But now consider that you're in that same McDonald's and you come out of the balls, you take your camera, and you climb on a tall ladder to the very top of the room, and then you take a picture of the balls. Well, now you've got a whole different perspective. You can see from everything around that somebody put those balls in that bin. There's great design that is there. That is kind of what happened with this new camera to scientists. They now had a chance to step back and they did not see random explosion. What they saw was brilliant artistry and it floored them. They expected to see evidence of a gallon of milk spilled on the floor. Again, you know where I've been recently. <laughs> what they found as they walked into the room of space was 30 glasses of milk carefully arranged around the table. They were shocked. One scientist said very honestly, the big bang just went bust. One thing that these, this camera pictured was a great wall of stars. Carefully arranged symmetrical wall 
of stars that we could never see before. It would be like driving down the road out into the country and looking across a field and seeing a fence running along the freeway. What do you see when you see that fence? I wonder how long it took for that to evolve. Look at that brilliant accident, that random event. No, you say somebody built the fence. There's a designer. Somebody made it. It's no different when they saw these pictures when they looked at the stars. Somebody did this. And what is being discovered as we reach further into the vast stretches of outer space is being equally discovered as we learn to see smaller and smaller things on Earth. In his book, Origin of Species, Charles Darwin, the father of the theory of evolution, said this, If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. The cameras, what they have discovered in outer space, is being discovered now on a smaller scale by microbiologists. There's a lot that's been written. I was given even a, an article this week from the Star and Tribune is even talking about Michael B.'s book, 1996. He authored the landmark book, Darwin's Black Box. He is not a creationist. He doesn't believe Genesis chapter 1. I hope someday he does. But in the words of a reviewer, B demolished Darwin's theory by offering multiple examples at the bio, uh, biochemical level of intricately designed, irreducibly complex elements which could not have evolved. B, in his own words, writes this, When I say that something is irreducibly complex, I simply mean it is a system composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. In other words, it couldn't have gotten here by a process. You take one element away from it and it's dead. It's lifeless. It's non-existent. It could not have evolved. He goes on to say evolution cannot explain the origin of the complex biochemical structures that undergird life. It doesn't even try. The conclusion of intelligent design flows naturally from the data itself, not from sacred books or sectarian beliefs. Now, this is not a Bible believer, unfortunately. But he's making clear to say, I didn't get this out of the Bible, I'm getting this out of the evidence. There is a designer. The deeper we go, the farther we go, we see that someone designed this universe Robert Clark, a Ph.D., organic chemistry from Cambridge University, comments in his book, The Universe, Plan or Accident. He says this, The existence of design and nature is a fact which must certainly be taken seriously because in every main branch of science, physics, geophysics, astronomy, chemistry, biology, we are faced by the same surprising fact. Nearly everywhere, nature shows the signs of something that we can only think of in terms of ingenuity and deliberate design. Writes Michael Denton, it is sheer universality of perfection. It is the sheer universality of perfection. The fact that everywhere we look, to whatever depth we look, we find an elegance and ingenuity of an absolutely transcending quality, which so mitigates against the idea of chance. In practically every field of fundamental biological research, ever-increasing levels of design and complexity are being revealed and at an ever-accelerating rate. I'm belaboring the point, I realize, but every, uh, even evolutionary scientists are beginning to admit that the world 
in which we live is the work of a master designer. Yet sinful mankind refuses to acknowledge this reality and continues to chase after these myths. There's no God. There's no designer to the universe. It all just somehow happened for no reason. The inorganic evolved into the organic, plant life into animal life, animal life into human life. The theory of evolution is just another example that man does not want God to mess with his world. This is sadly true even of religious man, for across this city, across this state, and this globe, there are people today who are gathering in churches who firmly believe that this world evolved. They gather in the name of God to read the Bible, and they pray, but they believe that God did not create the universe, as he says he did. The irony of it all is that if man is driving along the freeway and sees a fence made out of rock, he says, oh, I wonder who put that together. He realizes immediately that somebody made the fence. But when God does it, he's blind. He refuses to see that there's a designer. Why is that? Because sin blinds. Sin blocks the heart from seeing God. Or another way to say it, in light of this creative week that we are studying here together, mankind is stuck on day six and will not get into day seven. Refuses to consider the fact of day seven. Let me review briefly. We missed last week uh, because of our uh, program, but let me review, and for those that weren't with us here in the past, Notice Genesis chapter 1. God tells us here in precise terms that he created the world in 24-hour days. Six 24-hour days. So that all that we see in our universe owes its existence not to a lower life form, plus an infinite number of miraculous mutations and genetic adaptations multiplied by billions of years, but directly to God himself. On day one, you notice verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1, God spoke. He didn't initiate a process, he spoke. And by the sheer power of his command, light was separated from darkness with the result that time was marked by the daily rotation of an evening followed by a morning, day one. Verses 6 through 8, on day two, God again speaks. At his command, the waters are separated on the surface of the earth, there's water. Up above, a probably invisible canopy of water in between what we know as space. On day 3, verses 9 through 13, God performs a twofold act of creation. Again, he does not initiate a process. He speaks. What does he create? The dry land is separated from the waters on the face of the earth. Then he creates vegetation to cover the dry land. Grass, plants, and trees with seed in them so that all vegetation is genetically coated to self-propagate within the ordained strictures of their unique kinds. There's development within kinds, but there's no development between kinds. Day four through six then mirrors day one through three. Like a master sculptor, God refines his rough universe. So on day four, verses 14 through 19, you see there in chapter one, God speaks and he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, adding detail to day one. On day 5, verses 20 through 23, God speaks, and the seas teem with an innumerable variety of creatures. Big and small, birds populate the skies, adding the finishing touches to day 2, which was space. On day 6, verses 24 through 31, we find the crowning day of God's creative activity. Like day 3, which fills 
Day six fills up day three. We find here two creative acts. And the pinnacle of the creative week is what? God creates man in his image and likeness. Notice verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We find in these verses the creative dignity of mankind who is set over the creative order as God's representative on earth. But there's one more day. The story doesn't end there. There's one more day in God's creative week. And it is the acknowledgement of the seventh and final day that separates sinful mankind from the genuine Christian, the humanist, from the true believer, the evolutionist, from the creationist. It's all, it all comes together in day seven. Day six is the pinnacle of the work of creation, but day six is not the pinnacle of the creative week. So we come to chapter 2 and verse 1, and I should say a very poor chapter division in the Bible. Uh, the chapter divisions and verses, you remember, are not part of the original text. These were done uh, thousands of years later, and whoever put chapter 2 where they put it misplaced it. It should come at the end of verse 3, because that concludes the creative week, and we'll get into why when we get to 2-4, Lord willing, in the following, that there's a, there's a signpost there to say that he's making a transition into a new topic. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 is the seventh day. And we note, first of all, in verse 1, that God concluded his creative work on the sixth day. There's nothing difficult to understand in these verses. They are all interlocking. They basically say the same thing with a little bit of a different twist on each one. But in verse 1, I don't know what else to say, but to say that it's just telling us God concluded his creative work on the sixth day. We note in verse 1, chapter 2 of Genesis, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Let me just take a moment to look at the meaning of the text, and then we'll go to the implications of it. When you notice there in verse 1, it says, In all their vast array. The word in, I think, would be better translated from the Hebrew and. We have really three things here. The heavens, the earth, and thirdly, their vast array. All the things that fill up the heavens and the earth. The NIV uses the word in, and it kind of tends to, to put it just as heaven and earth. But I think it's, uh, he's drawing this idea out. The heavens, the earth, and everything that fills them up. He calls it the vast array, or the King James, the hosts of them. It's a Hebrew word which was used in military context, denoting an army that is assembled and organized for war. What does it mean here? It means that in six days, God in completed his intricately designed universe. It's assembled and organized before the Creator. And it is tuned to do his bidding. As God puts it in Isaiah 45 and verse 12, it is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. It's an interesting translation of the concept. I marshaled the starry hosts. God is the organizer, the designer, and the master, the one who marshals the planets and the stars and everything that happens on this earth. The heavens, the earth, and all of their vast array are completed, chapter 2 and verse 1 says. What a phenomenal word! 
What a word that distinguishes us from the world around us. It's done. It's completed or finished. Creation was over. Now notice verses 2 and 3, how they emphasize this fact. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so that on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work that he had created from all the work of creating that he had done. He just continues to emphasize this. It's over. Creation is done. Now, what does that tell us? What's the point of it? God makes it crystal clear that the work of creation is done. Scientists tell us what? They tell us there's an unknown magnetism which holds our universe together. They can't figure out what it is. But... By all rights, our universe should just blow up and just explode and just fall apart. But something holds it all together. There's kind of a cosmic Elmer's glue that keeps you together. What is it? Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 fills in the details with a simple phrase. It says, Jesus is the creator of the world and in him all things hold together. My point is this. When God says that he completed his his work... It doesn't mean that he walked away. He continues to sustain and he continues to preserve his creation. But chapter 2 and verse 1 teaches us that God is done creating. And we see this point stressed four times in these three verses. But fallen humanity puts their hands over their ears and refuses to heed what God says here. Henry Morris says it so well, I want to just quote it to you. God emphasizes the fact that creation is done because, this is a lot, listen carefully, there's much here. God emphasizes this because, Morris says, it is vitally important for man to realize that the present processes of the cosmos are not processes of creating and making, And therefore, it would forever be impossible for man to understand about the origin of things apart from divine revelation. You can't go to the creative order and figure out how it got here because it's done. It's not being created. It's finished. Only through revelation can we get the key that opens the gate to truly understand science. As Sir Isaac Newton put it, I've learned nothing about science except through my understanding of God as the Creator. Morris goes on, Both the ancient pagan evolutionists and the modern scientific evolutionists continue over and over to repeat this folly, trying to explain the origin and basic meaning of things in terms of a self-contained, closed universe, an attempt which is absolutely impossible. The present processes of the universe are without exception processes of conservation and disintegration, as formulated in the two universal laws of thermodynamics. Energy is conserved and everything continues to break down. The processes of conservation and disintegration could never produce a universe requiring almost infinite processes of innovation and production. We come back to the simple text of Scripture. Too simple for self-righteous man. Too simple for proud humanity. But very simply, God is done creating on day seven. So Revelation teaches us that God concluded his creating work 
on the sixth creative day, he now sustains and preserves. It is disintegrating. It is falling apart, but it is also conserving itself in a unique way, and God's hand is in that, but he's done creating on day six. We note then in verse 2 that God rested on the seventh day. Same idea, same theme, but twisted a little different way. Notice verse 2. On the seventh day, God finished the work he had been doing, so that on the seventh day he rested from all his work. I've read the translation purposefully. If you have the NIV here, I would just cross out the word by because it's not in the Hebrew text, the original text. The word by, is, it just misleads us. On the seventh day, God cross out had and say finished. So it should just read, on the seventh day, God finished. Simply the way that the, the Hebrew reads. Now, there's a reason why the NIV translates it that way, but I think it's just not the right way to translate it. God finished on the seventh day the work he had done. Now, we notice here what's important is that he rested on the seventh day. You see that in verse 2. At the end of the verse, he rested from all his work. Was God exhausted? Was he tired out? Was he weak and puffing? No, he's omnipotent, omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's not resting in that kind of a way where he needs to catch his breath. But the point is that there is a cessation from work. He stopped creating on the seventh day. And I don't think we should understand that to mean that God created on the seventh day and then stopped. But what it means is this. The The seventh day was the first day in a series on which God did not create. There's no creation that takes place on the seventh day, and that's vital to understand. On days one through six, we witness unimaginable, an unimaginable flurry of creative acts. We can't even begin to comprehend making the stars with a word in one day and all of the intricacies of our biosphere. How do we explain that? We can't even begin to understand. There's a flurry of creative acts, but with his omnipotent power and wisdom, God fashions the universe and then rests. He doesn't create on day seven. What does it mean? Did you notice that verse 2 doesn't really say anything differently from verse 1? Verse 2 turns the focus off of creation and onto God. That's the whole point. In, In six days, God created the universe, and we ought to be in awe. But on this seventh day, God rested. I don't think, again, that the meaning is that God no longer works. Colossians 1.17 says that he preserves everything. John chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus says, My Father is always working, and I also work. The point is God is not laying back on a lounge chair in peaceful repose. He's not abandoned his universe. He sustains it, but the point is he's not creating. He doesn't have to, be, he doesn't have to work because creation is finished, and so he rests. Well, what are we to make of this rest? What does it mean that God rests on the seventh day? It doesn't mean much until we perceive what God does do on the seventh day. He rests. What does that mean? Verse 3 says that God blesses and hallows this seventh day on which he rests. Notice the text, 2-3. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. What's new in this verse? What's different than verse 2 and verse 1? What do we find here that's different in the text? God has already told us that creation is completed. He has already told us that he's rested on the seventh day. Do you see what's added? God blesses this day on which he rests. God blesses it and he makes it holy. This seventh day is holy. The idea of the Hebrew word is that it is distinctive. 
It's different. Notice how different it is from days one through six. On days one through six, God speaks, God makes, God creates. On this day, God rests. Unlike days one through six, we do not read that there was an evening and a morning. There was, but we don't read that. Moses doesn't mention it. Unlike days one through six, God blesses this day. In chapter one, verse 22, God blesses the sea creatures and the birds. In chapter one, verse 28, God blesses mankind. But none of the first six days does God bless. This day is holy. This day is unique. He blesses the seventh day. God hallows it. That is, he makes it holy. The Hebrew word again means to set apart, to make distinct. Now here's the question that will bring it It'll tie it all up for us. Why does God bless the seventh day and make it holy? Why is it that this is a unique day, a blessed day, a holy day? Why? Notice at the end of verse 2, the middle of verse 2, you see that word because. That is making a connection. The first part of verse 3 says that God blesses and makes it holy because. Here's the reason why. On it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now that just sounds redundant, but it's not redundant. He's saying, I'm resting, I'm stopped, I'm not making, I'm not creating, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. All right, we get that point. Then he goes and says, and so I'm hallowing this day because I'm not creating, I'm resting. That's mind-boggling. When we think of the vastness of outer space, I know we can't, but just try to contemplate in your own mind billions of light years in every direction and stars innumerable. Try to contemplate the vastness of outer space and then bring it all inside and go inside something like a DNA molecule and all of its information with all of its intricacies. All of that God created in six days and he doesn't hallow that. He hallows the seventh day on which he rests. He sets aside for his special purposes the very day on which he, the creator, rests and on which nothing is created. What does that say to us? It says that the creator is to be hallowed above all of his creation. We look at our creative world and we are in awe. And if we're not, we just don't know much about it. The more we learn about it, the more in awe we are of the beauty of creation, of its intricacies, of its vastness, of its depth of its precision. But God sets himself apart from all of creation. And he says, my day is to be hallowed, the one on which I rest. Humanism seeks to assert the sixth day as the hallowed day, the day on which man was made. But God hallows the day on which he rests. If he had made the sixth day hallowed, we might think that we were to be the crown, that we were the crowning uh, per, the, the crowning act of creation. In a sense, we were over creation, but we might think that we're supreme. We're not. God makes it very clear. He hallows the seventh day on which nothing is created. God is supreme. And this life makes no sense until we acknowledge this reality. He is above creation. He is supreme above all. But this reality is exactly what sinful man refuses to acknowledge. He cuts day seven out of his thoughts. And what does he do according to Romans chapter one? He worships and serves created things. He turns his worship through his sin, not to the creator who is distinct from his creation, but he worships created things. He worships nature, not the creator. He enthrones himself as the pinnacle of the creative week, but not God. 
as the author of the seventh day. And the reason, of course, is sin clogs his heart. For fallen humanity every day is a war with the Creator. A war to unseat the supreme creator and sustainer of the universe and to enthrone man there. This passage in this seventh day teaches us that the creator is to be hallowed above all his creation. He's completely distinct. There is in that the transcendence of God. The absolute transcendence. He's above. He's bigger than we can imagine. He's way beyond us. He's completely above I don't know how else to say it. I mean, words fail me. Then we see also in this Sabbath day, this principle, and that is that God is man's source of rest. There we see his imminence. This day of rest has something to do with us on earth. How can God bless a day? I mean, can you go up to a table and say, you're blessed? It doesn't make sense. How does he bless a day, a non-personal entity? The day is blessed with the idea that it will prove beneficial. It will be a day of blessing. And the Bible teaches that the benefit of this blessing is enjoyed particularly by mankind. The point is not that we have some kind of special blessing that we get on Saturday. There's a deeper and more profound truth here. By making the seventh day holy, God points us to himself as the source of our blessing. We've got to take this trajectory through the end of the Bible. He blesses this seventh day, and it's a theme that develops through the rest of Scripture. It's not just Saturdays. There's something to it. God created each one of us with an inner passion for joy. And then He invites us to Himself as the source of that joy which we crave. He created us with a spiritual thirst, and He reveals that He is the water of life. He creates us in day six and he sets himself aside in day seven and he blesses the day and we get a piece of that blessing as we walk into day seven. And is that true? That sounds like a lot of philosophy, but it's a biblical philosophy, I believe. And I invite you to Isaiah chapter 58. See if we understand this idea here. I, I ask you to test this thought. Isaiah 58, we know we're now in the Old Testament context. And in this Old Testament context, we know that God has established the Sabbath day for the people of God on which they are to contemplate Him. Now, we tend to look at it from the eyes of Christ as they had messed it all up. They either didn't honor the Sabbath or they had made it into a ritualistic burden upon humanity. But we notice here God's intention concerning the Sabbath day as He institutes it with the Israelites. Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 13. Isaiah 58 and verse 13. God says, If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, I don't know what you get. Let me just stop there. But there's a lot of contradictory thoughts in there, it seems, isn't there? Don't do as you please. Don't do as you please. And then he also says in there, you call it a delight. The Sabbath day is my delight and I'm not doing what I please. How does that work? Verse 14. If you do this, if you keep the Sabbath, verse 14, then you will find your joy in the Lord. You see it? The Sabbath is a day set aside. The Sabbath is a unique remembrance for the people of God in Old Testament Israel so that they would find their joy in God. 
Or where does he come up with the idea of the Sabbath day? In Genesis chapter 2. Don't you hear that bell ringing throughout the New Testament? Don't you hear it? God saying to us, come into my rest. Find in me your joy. Don't we hear it? In the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, Christ sent from God to earth, and what do the angels say? Glory to God in the highest. He's distinct. He's transcendent. And what? And on earth, peace toward men. You can enter that peace. You can enter that rest. It's for you. There's a blessing in this seventh day. We hear it in the life of Jesus. We see it in the life of Jesus as He performs the miracles. He proved that He was Lord over creation. He feeds thousands of people with bread from just a few loaves. He's the Creator. What is He saying to us when He stands up in the middle of a storm that's about to swamp His boat and says, stop, and the sea becomes like glass? He's saying, I'm the Creator. I'm the Creator of the universe. I am God above all gods. That's who I am. What does he say to the woman at the well? You have a thirst in your soul, and I am the source of that. I I will quench that thirst. I'm the water of life. He says to his disciples, what? Peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Peace I give to you. Christ dies, and he rises from the dead. Did you hear it in Hebrews chapter 3 when I read it this morning earlier? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 11 especially says, There now remains for the people of God a Sabbath rest. Israel didn't enter that rest. Even with the careful strictures of the Sabbath day observance, they didn't get it. They didn't find in God their joy. The Sabbath became for them a discipline, a ritual, and it led to nothing but their pride. But they never found their joy in God. So the author of Hebrews says, There still is a Sabbath rest for the soul that is weary, for the soul that is thirsty, for the soul that is crying out to be filled with something of meaning. There's a Sabbath rest, and the answer is God. The answer is the creator of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ. As Augustine put it so well in his prayer, O God, our hearts are created for thee, and we are restless until we find rest in thee. Have you found this rest for your soul in God? Oh, this world offers all kinds of other opportunities, all kinds of other sources of materialistic pleasure. To find your joy in something temporal, God sets himself completely apart, his transcendence, but in his imminence he says, come, I will be the source of your ultimate joy and pleasure. Have you found that rest? As you sit here this morning, do you know the rest that comes from realizing your sins are forgiven? Is there something in your soul that just rings out and says, yes, I know the rest that comes from sins forgiven? Do you personally know the joy of having Christ's righteousness imputed to your account, given to you, not deservingly? Do you know that joy? Are you walking daily in this joyful rest? You noticed it again from Hebrews chapter 4. He is saying there, I believe to Christians, in part, you have to work to enter the rest. We don't work to get our salvation, but we work to walk in the rest that is God, where He is the source of our joy, and He is the source of our rest, and He is the source of our peace. Do you experience in God your ultimate source of joy, or are you trying to find happiness in His creation? Remember, Christian, that every created thing 
every person, every animal, every spot on this earth, every plant, every star, every planet, every Christmas gift. Every created thing is temporal and it is unable to fulfill the longings of your eternal soul. We can drug ourselves, we can trick ourselves, we can keep ourselves under these pleasures for a period of time, but they can never fulfill the longing of your eternal soul. Only God can do that, and He will. There's a rest for the people of God, a Sabbath rest in Him. Father, how we thank You, how we rejoice together in this 